just in case anybody would want to know anything about Alpha. Morning, everyone. Frank was wanting me to announce that some of you may be interested in this, possibly, probably all of us are. You know, we do a lot of praying and giving and activities for Alpha. So he wanted me to let you know that 222 people attended Alpha last Tuesday. Now, I think that that's the highest number we've had since before Katrina. Pete would know that. Uh, is that right, Frank? No? Okay. It's a high number, though. Okay, whatever. <clears throat> whatever. You can see how, how versed I am with all of this information. I'm filled with information. Well, thank you for being here this morning as we celebrate what is called Palm Sunday, the Sunday that we remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. I think there's going to be a picture. There you go. I think that's possibly a picture that doesn't, it's not our fault, it's not Eric's fault, it doesn't show some of the excitement, but there it is. And for those of you who are visiting, my name is Peter Davidson, one of the pastors here at Lakeview. And as I begin, just as an editorial comment. Wait, this thing is making noises up here. I don't know what this is. <laughs> okay, thank you. There it is. I turned it off. I didn't know what I was doing, uh, which isn't unusual, is it? I just want us to be aware of the wisdom of the leadership team of this church. All the other pastors are gone this morning. <laughs> and they have left you in my hands. <laughs> now, thankfully, three elders, Bill, Phil, and Steve, are here, but I can outrun all three of them. <laughs> and I certainly can play basketball and baseball better than all of them. Phil, you didn't say anything on that. Okay. Good to have you here this morning. This morning, what I felt the Holy Spirit lead me to do is to present the issue of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that particular day so many years ago within the context of our taking or celebrating communion at the end of the service. And so there's a goal that I believe the Holy Spirit has in mind. And there's always a goal to the ministry of the Word. And the goal is for those who are not part of the family of God to hear the Word and to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit in such a way that you will be birthed into the kingdom as you receive the Word of God. And for those who are members of the kingdom of God to receive the word 
and be matured by it, be changed by it, be conformed more and more into the image of God's Son. And so every time we speak, the purpose of God in this is not just to hear somebody say something about Bible stuff. It's the great burden and purpose of heaven to gather us as a people and to minister to us through the word by the Holy Spirit so that as we came in this morning, we will leave different people as we go out, having been touched by the presence of God's power. That's what always you and I should want and expect and pray for. This is not just a time of listening to another word and hearing another story, not a time of a man just saying stuff. This, in God's economy, is a very sacred and significant time and should be for us possibly the most significant time of our week. So that's what's happening. So we're going to share this morning within the context of the goal of ministering or applying what we will say this morning about Jesus' purpose for entering Jerusalem. We're going to apply that at the end of the service. So I would ask you to listen with thought and anticipation to, Lord, how do you want me to apply what I'm hearing this morning as we celebrate communion? Father, thank you. Most astounding that you would want to be with us. Father, it's not astounding that we would want to be with you. We all feel that. But that you want to be with us so much more than we want to be with you. Father, when we look at ourselves, we find nothing in us that would say, I don't understand this. But it resides within you in your great and grand grace and mercy to share yourself with us at the highest price. Father, minister to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all know Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem. And the question we have is, why does Jesus enter Jerusalem on that particular Passover? Which, as we know, will be his last Passover. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the Bible says of Jesus, and Jesus resolutely set his face or determined to set out for Jerusalem. This was the divine determination. The divine determination was that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem on this particular Passover. You see, he knew that when he went to Jerusalem this time, unlike the other times, this is the third time, he knew that this time, unlike the other times, everything would be different. 
he would, when he went into the city, suffer and die. Remember in Luke 18, 31, Jesus tells the disciples about going into Jerusalem. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He, now remember, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will insult him. They will spit upon him. They will flog him, beat him, and then they will kill him. He knows this is going to happen. And yet, he is determined to go to Jerusalem. Why? What was there about going to Jerusalem that was so significant on this particular Passover? You see, in a very general way, Jesus came into the world to fulfill God's great creative purpose. And I always need to go back into the beginning in order to draw us forward so we have a comprehensive view of what's going on. Remember in Genesis 1.26, after God has created the heavens and the earth, at the end of the sixth day, the Lord says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God's purpose in creating us, the reason we are here, is that God would have a people in whom he is clearly and consistently manifested as to who he is, the great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and manifested as to his character, holy and loving and merciful. This was God's purpose. But you remember that purpose failed with Adam's sin. And so Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to fulfill the purpose, to bring about the fulfillment of that purpose which had been thwarted for a period of time by Adam's sin because God's purposes will never be shelved. What he determines to do, he always does. So Jesus came to Jerusalem for this purpose, knowing that at this particular Sabbath, Passover, the fulfillment of God's great creative purpose thousands of years before would finally be brought to fruition by himself in what he will do. So what does he do? The Old Testament, remember, records Adam's rejection of God's purpose. And what God does, instead of killing Adam, because God will have his purpose, and if he kills Adam, his purpose is thwarted. Remember, he had put Adam in a garden, in a place. And it was in this Garden of Eden where God and man would dwell together. It was in this location, this place, this garden where God would walk with man and they would commune and fellowship together. But as a result of Adam's sin, Adam, remember, was put out of the garden. 
And so what has to happen is that God must bring man back to the place where he and man can fellowship together in another location, in another garden. And so the history of the Old Testament gives us the record of God's relentless pursuit to fulfill this purpose of creating a place and bringing his people back into this location where he and his people may fellowship together, where the people of God may be able to come into the very presence of a holy God and still live. That's the context. The dwelling place of God and the bringing of God's people into that dwelling place for communion and for fellowship. And this place, at this particular Passover, was the temple. This is what the temple was all about. You see, the temple was designed to be the divine dwelling place. The divine dwelling place. Remember, the temple was built by Solomon, David's son. And the temple being built was called the house of God. Remember, Solomon says, I will build the house of God. The house, the location where the family gets together and has communion and fellowship. And so Solomon builds the temple. But you see, before the temple was built... There was a tabernacle in the wilderness. Now, we're going through this very quickly, just trying to create a context for us. So there was first the tabernacle and then the temple. But when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he is entering where the temple is. So let's talk about the tabernacle, which is a precursor of the temple, and then bring it forward back to what the temple is. Remember that the Lord delivered Egypt, Israel from Egypt. Do you remember why he delivered them from Egypt? Do you remember why? Sometimes we forget, why does God save us? What was God's purpose? Listen to what he says in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. This is why God saves his people. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. For instance, I will save my people from their sin, from their captivity of Satan. We can update it to our own selves. And I will deliver them from slavery, and I will redeem them with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Why? I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And then in several other statements to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go that they may worship me. God's whole purpose in creating us and in delivering us, in delivering Israel from Egypt, was so he would gather his people to himself for fellowship and for communion. This is why we exist. This is what life is all about for those who are in Christ. Now remember the means of their deliverance. The means of their deliverance from Egypt, remember, was the Passover sacrificial lamb that was slain on that first Passover. In Exodus 13, the Lord says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. And so the command was that every 
firstborn in Egypt will die tonight. But then he tells his people how they can be spared of that death and how that death can be given and placed upon another in their stead. So he remember he says, everyone take a lamb and you're going to cut the throat of the lamb. You're going to pour the lamb's blood in the basin, in that cutout part at the base of the door. And you're going to take hyssop and you're going to dip the hyssop in the basin where the blood has been poured out at the base of the door, the threshold of the door. And you're going to take the hyssop and you're going to spread it on the doorpost and on the lentil. Therefore, there will be an entire wall of blood as an entrance to your house. And the Lord says, every house that has that blood smeared at the bottom and on all sides of the door place, every, every house that has that blood smeared on it, everyone who is in that house, what does that mean? Trusting in the delivering promise of God through the shedding of blood. Everyone who is in the house has trusted in the delivering power of God through the shedding of blood. Everyone who does that, he says, I will pass over. The angel of death will not touch you. Everyone else's house, the angel of death will come in and will slay the firstborn of that house. And obviously that is a picture of the death of Christ for our salvation. Now, just as a point of interest for us, if this morning as you listen to this and you are depending upon anything else except the shed blood of Christ for your redemption, the Bible says, I will not pass over you. I will judge you. And the only way to be freed and delivered from the judgment of the death of the penalty of God is to have the blood smeared, if you would, over the doorposts of your life to trust in the delivering power of the shed blood of Jesus. And as you listen to this today, if you are thinking, well, I've done this and I've done that and I've been a good whatever the religion would be and I've tried to be the best I can, that's not the way what God was looking for. He was looking for one thing. When I see the blood, I will pass over. You remember what happened? That night, Israel celebrated that very first Passover meal in celebration of what God would do. And then they left Egypt the next day. And when they go into the wilderness, you remember the Lord brings them to the mountains of Sinai and gives them the law and establishes Israel as his covenant nation. After giving them the law, and after the nation accepts the law that we will do what you've told us to do, we will obey. Then the Lord gives them the means of being maintained as his nation because keeping the law was never the means of maintaining their relationship with God because they could not keep the law. And so they had to keep the law. But when they failed and God knew that they would, he gave them the means of fellowshipping with him and being maintained as his people. And so the Lord gave Moses the instruction for building the tabernacle. The tabernacle will be the physical location where God would dwell with his people in fellowship and in communion. 
So Exodus 25, 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And so as God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden and walked with them in the garden, now God has a tabernacle which represents the garden in the Garden of Eden as the place where God will walk with his people, where he will fellowship with his people. And so when the tabernacle is completed in Exodus 40, verse 34, the Bible says, and the glory of the Lord came down and filled the tabernacle. Finally, God's dwelling was no longer on Mount Sinai, but finally God's dwelling was on earth in the midst of his people. He's finally come down to be with them, residing with them in the tabernacle. And so you think, hey, this is it. But something happened. The next verse, Exodus 40, verse 35 says, but Moses, or and Moses, could not enter. Not even Moses could enter. Once the instructions for the tabernacle had been given, and once the tabernacle had been constructed, it was now the place of God's presence, and not even Moses could enter. Well, what kind of a fellowship is that? That God always remains over there, and we cannot enter into his presence. Something else remained. There needed to be a way into the presence of God. And the way into the presence of God is answered in Leviticus. Therefore, Leviticus, those 27 chapters are given to us, delineating the sacrificial system, talking about the consecration of the priesthood, and specifying the rites and rituals for clean and unclean, holy and profane. All of that is about one issue. How may God's people come into his presence, and how may they remain as his clean, purified, and holy people in his presence to experience communion and fellowship? That's what Leviticus is all about. It answers the question, who may come in to the presence of God? So this is the system. This is the Levitical legislation that was in place when Jesus enters Jerusalem so many years later. See, this is the purpose now of the temple. The temple, remember, has taken the place of the tabernacle when Solomon completed it. Seven years of construction is completed. The tabernacle, remember, is dismantled, never to be built again, but the furniture from the tabernacle is brought into the temple, and now the temple serves as the same purpose, God's place of glory. But who may come in? Well, still, the people can come into the presence of God only by the legislation that God mandates in Leviticus. They can only come into the presence of God, they can only remain in the presence of God, and they can only worship and obey God prescribed by God, not prescribed by the people. So this is the system, as I said, that Jesus experiences when he comes into Jerusalem. Now, this particular Passover, like all the other Passovers at that time, had about as many people in Jerusalem as we have in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. The place was packed out. 
there were hundreds of thousands. In fact, there are a couple of even references that maybe a million people were in Jerusalem. Now, how many of you would have ever thought that? You know, we've seen the movies and we thought we're a couple of thousand people. There were hundreds of thousands of people packed into this city and in the surrounding area, all of them having come to Jerusalem according to the mandate of God. You must come to the feast three times a year, and this is one of those feasts that God required his people to come in and to celebrate, and so there they were. They were all there to worship God, to enter his presence, if you would, through the sacrificial system administered by the priests according to the Levitical system. You see, in order to enter the temple grounds, here was a problem. Those who were coming in from other areas of the world, especially foreigners, Gentiles were able to come in, at least to the court of the Gentiles. Anyone coming into Jerusalem to worship God had to pay what a half shekel temple tax. Now, can you imagine this morning us having a church tax when you come in. <laughs> Everybody has to pay a dollar when you come in here. But you see, the problem is, when you come in here, you just can't bring an ordinary worldly dollar because we're the people of God. We don't want worldly dollars. We want, if you would, holy dollars, religious dollars, dollars that are sanctioned by the leadership of the church. So we have Lakeview Christian Center currency. <laughs> and you have to buy that if you're coming into worship. But you see, what we're going to do is not only ask you to pay for that, but we're going to charge you a little bit more than a dollar, don't you see? <laughs> to make a little bit more than the dollar that you're giving. You know what I mean? It's called enterprise. It's called capitalism. The Bible calls it robbery. So they had to exchange their foreign money into shekels, into Hebrew money or Jewish money. And these money changes were making a few bucks on every time the transaction was made. Those who had come from a far distance, you see, weren't able to bring animals with them all that distance. I remember one time, I don't know, Frank, you were with me. Maybe you weren't, but I took one of these airlines in Russia when we used to go to Russia so many times in the 90s. And we get on this airliner, which whew, was a challenge and a half to faith. And this lady has an animal on the plane. They were bringing animals on the plane with them. Well, you see, people weren't bringing these animals to Jerusalem because they couldn't do that. So when they got into Jerusalem, they had to purchase a spotless animal. Oh, can you imagine that? You got thousands of people coming in here, and they have to come to you to buy a spotless animal. Is there a little change going off in your heads? And so there were these purchases going on. And, of course, as you know, a lamb at any other time is four bucks a pound. But during Mardi Gras, it's going to be 30 bucks a pound because, you know, we call it supply and demand. The Bible calls it robbery. 
And so they were going in and they were paying exorbitant prices for these animals. But the real issue, more than anything else, was where all this was happening. You see, years before Jesus, all of this merchandising activity happened outside the temple area. It was over there in that part of town. But you see, because of convenience and busyness and all of this kind of stuff, well, you know, I, I think it's going to be okay if, if we make some changes. I, I, know the, you know, I know the history has been this, but I, I think it's going to be okay if we can make some changes here because, you see, it's going to serve the purpose of God. It's going to just give people an opportunity to worship God better. Don't you see? So they said, why don't we begin to bring some of this activity into the court of the Gentiles to just make it easier for people. We'll make a few dollars on it anyway, but let's make it a little easier. You know, let's just make it more convenient for you. You see, the day we begin to make our worship and obedience and service to God on the basis of our, our what, convenience, this is idolatry. It's idolatry to read your Bible only when you have a moment. It's idolatry to give only what you think you have to give after everything else has been spent. It's idolatry because it makes the things of God subservient to us rather than making us subservient to this great God of ours. Amen? It's idolatry. Oh, it doesn't seem that way. And many would say, oh, Peter, you know, you're, you're just extreme. You're just, oh, no. God is the one who is extreme on these issues. I'm a powder puff. God has said these things. And we love to say, Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And hallelujah, the Lord never changes. Hallelujah, he is the same. He is the same God we can always depend. Hallelujah, and that's, that's true. But then when it comes to the way we live and the way we serve him and what we think is important, then we begin to make the changes, don't you see? And he has not changed. It's the culture that has changed us. Can you say amen, somebody? Amen. The culture is changing the church. God is not. And we're bringing those changes into the church to say, it's okay. It's okay. So they brought all these changes into the church of Jesus' day. It's okay. I mean, good old Jesus, we're forgiven. It's okay. We're forgiven, good old Jesus. God loves us all. <laughs> it's okay. Listen, and let's see if it's okay. See, the problem was, by the time of Jesus, all this worldly, man-made, man-convenient activity was inside the temple. And this was the scene that Jesus 
encountered when he entered Jerusalem. Turn to Mark 11. And I'm going to read some of the verses, not every single one, that records Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Verse 4, and they went away and found a colt. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of God, of, uh, a kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So Jesus enters the city. And what does he do? What does he do as he enters the city? Look at verse 11, very instructive. Because the scene that Jesus, the scene of Jesus entering the city and what he does is the very same thing he does when he enters to be with us on Sunday morning. He enters the city. Look at the three things he does. First, he goes to his temple. Why? It's the place of his presence and the place where he will commune with his people. Holy Spirit is here with us for communion and fellowship. But then, look what he does. As he went into the temple, now get the, get the, the, the picture again. This court of the Gentiles was supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. Isaiah tells you that. My house will be a prayer, a worship place. And as you enter the court of the Gentiles, you were supposed to be seeing and hearing people worshiping and praying. All of the clamor of the world was outside and was to be left outside. This was the place of God's presence where he was to be the one on whom all our focus was to be devoted and focused, leaving everything else aside as less significant than the presence of God. This was to be the place of prayer. But as Jesus entered, what does he see? He, the animals are bleeding, Blah, 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 and there's defecation all over the ground. There's stench, there's smell, there's pushing and shoving, there's jingling of money, all of this stuff. And people, it is a mess in this court of the Gentiles. And how can anyone enter and experience the presence and worship of God in the mess of this crowd of merchandising people? Are you getting it? Do you understand this? And so he looks around. And today as we sit here, he's looking around in you and in me and inspecting the merchandising of our temple. Yes. Yes. He looks around. 
And then he left and went back to Bethany. Three things. Went to Jerusalem, uh, the temple, looked around, inspects everything, and he goes back to Bethany. But you see, he comes back the next day. He comes back. Mark eleven fifteen to 17. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the temple, bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What had happened? The place of God's presence and worship had become polluted with the activities of men and the ways of the world. The world had come in to the church. And Jesus is angry. Because you see, he has saved his people to take them out of the influence and the manipulation and the damning activities and the deadening activities and the debilitating activities of the world so his people would be a people who could stand against the issues of the world as true lights on a hill, as true salt to the world, not being contaminated by the things of the world and thus begin to have their light covered over and their salt effectiveness become weakened by the things of the world. Oh, I know we, many of us don't think that that's happening or can happen, but it is and it will. Listen to what Jeremiah 7, 11 says. Has this house, this house, which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. See, this verse was being fulfilled by Jesus as he enters Jerusalem, as he goes into the temple. What, what was Jesus doing by cleansing the temple? What, what was happening behind the scenes? What was the issue really in the cleansing of the temple? Why was he doing this? You see, what he was doing, he was announcing the end of the temple as the location of God's presence among his people because of the weakness of the priesthood and the inability of the sacrifices to fulfill God's purpose. See, God always knew that the sacrificial system and the priest who administered would never be able to truly bring his people into his eternal purpose. He knew that. But this system was set up to take care of the people and maintain them as God's people through their obedient worship until he came who would fulfill in all of its requirements, totally all of the requirements of God in order to come into his presence. And here he is. And so by cleansing the temple, he is saying, all that you have stood for and all that you have symbolized is now over. I am now the one who will be the temple of God and I will conclude the whole system in my suffering and death and I will raise up a new and eternal temple where God will dwell with his people. 
You see, the Levitical system was only a temporary system waiting for the permanent to come. By cleansing the temple, Jesus was announcing that he would be the fulfillment so that the house of God would be the place where God and his people would dwell forever. How does he do that? Because he's a son of God. Now, what was Jesus celebrating as he takes a Passover meal that night? He was doing two things as he took the Passover meal that night. He was celebrating the end of the old and the coming in of the new. And by coming into the temple, he makes a definitive declarative statement. All of this old way of coming into God's presence through this sacrificial system and this priesthood is now over. I myself will be the way into God's presence. You remember in John 10, 7, he says, I am the door of the sheepfold. So what was the divine result? What is the result of Jesus cleansing the temple? Well, the result was at the cross. He accomplishes at the cross what he symbolized in cleansing the temple. In cleansing the temple, he said, I will cleanse the temple, shut it down, complete its work, and I will bring in a brand new work. And so at the cross is where the pollution and the purging of sin occurs for God's people in finality. That's where it all came to an end. The temple signifying and the sacrifices signifying year after year, it's coming, it's coming, it's temporary, it's coming. And then finally, here is a man on earth who finally puts it away forever in his own death. What is the result? Listen to what Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says. <clears throat> and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the new city of the great king, the new city in which the presence of God dwelt, the new, a new, creation, new created city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. When Jesus was born, you remember, he was the dwelling place of God in a man. John 1, 14, and we beheld his glory, and that glory was as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But now as a result of Jesus' death, now the dwelling place of God is with all of his people. He not only now dwells among us, but he dwells in us and we dwell in him. And he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no mourning, no crying or pain. For the older order of things has passed away. All of that happened because Jesus cleansing the temple and putting it into reality at the cross. He came into Jerusalem to put an end to the temporary system and to establish the permanent place, the permanent tabernacle, the permanent temple, the permanent 
house of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And so we are the new temple of God. We are that temple. Listen to what 1 Peter 2.5 says. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We now are the temple. We have taken the place of that old temple in Jerusalem. We have now taken the place of the tabernacle. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For we are the living, sorry, for we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk with them. Remember, walk with them in the Garden of Eden. Remember, the Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, because of what God has done with us and for us and in us through Christ because of God's purpose having made us his dwelling place. Therefore, go out from their midst, meaning the midst of the world, meaning don't live that way anymore because we are the peculiar people of God not to be drinking in all of the ways of the world. Because the world says it's a fashion statement doesn't mean that we should be wearing it. Because the world says it's okay to do this doesn't mean that it's okay for us to do this. Because the world says it's all right to go there doesn't mean it's all right to go there. We are God's people now. No longer belonging to Satan, and we have become God's people at the highest price of all, the very death of his only son, to be a holy people, a separate people, a peculiar people, so that when the world looks at us and the activities and the places, etc., that we are engaged in, they can see immediately by the Spirit these people belong to God rather than looking at it and saying, I can't tell much of a difference. I can't tell much of a difference in the way they speak, what they do, and all of the other. And he says, be separate from them says the Lord, and do not touch any unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, saith the Lord Almighty. Remember when Jesus was with the disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He was sitting around the table having that last Passover meal. And brothers, y'all can start coming down. Remember when the night Jesus was betrayed. And he gets up from the dinner table, John 13. And what does he do? He takes off all the outer clothing and he girds himself around. He takes a bowl of water, takes a towel. He stoops down and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And of course, you know, the big mouth in the group says, you'll never do it my feet. 
And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, now listen, listen to me, listen to what he says. Listen, church, to what he says. Because you see, there is a thought that we, when we're saved, it doesn't matter because we're saved no matter how we live and what we do. That is not the truth. And he says, if I don't wash you, remember, Peter was part of the group, right? If I don't wash you, you have no part of me. He says, all of you have been clean by the word that I've spoken, and so it's only necessary that your feet be washed. He's talking to men who are part of his kingdom here. He said, but if I don't wash you, if you do not let me do a cleansing of regularity in your life, if you do not allow me to regularly inspect you and cleanse you, and deal with the issues. If you're not willing to open your heart, if you're not willing to accept that, if you're not willing to ask me and to receive what I'm saying to you, you're not mine. You see, because a true child of God will say, Father, whatever the issue is, whatever it is, no matter what it is, I am yours and I am willing to lay it down for your purposes rather than, well, you know, God doesn't think that. I don't believe this. I think this is going to happen. All of that is the activity of the enemy keeping us from being cleansed by God's Spirit. Never assume what God wants. He says, let me wash your feet. He said, but if there's any issue in your life, no, no, I don't think so. I think I'm okay here. I don't need that. No, I think this is all right. I, he says, you're not a part of me. Because you see, that's an activity of rebellion. I know it's going to disturb some who thinks that when we're saved, it doesn't matter how we live and what we do and where we're going, but the Bible simply doesn't teach it. This morning... As you come down to receive these elements in communion, I want us to do so, coming on down to receive them, sit at your chair and hold them for a moment, remembering as you take this, by taking this, I affirm that I am part of the household of God. Now, if you're not part of the household of God, if you're not born again, if you've not been saved, if, if you're not sure, it's important that you deal with that first because you don't want to say, I'm part of the household and be a liar in God's presence when he says you're not part of the household. But that's something you had to determine in your own spirit. But as you come down this morning, keep in mind, Jesus is watching and inspecting our hearts. And this morning, what he wants to do is to reveal to us any area that is not pleasing to him. Any activity whatsoever, no matter what we have thought about it, no matter how we have rationalized it, he wants us to know what his will is in that area. And he wants us to let 
him wash us of any and all impurity of those things that happen to us as we walk around in a polluted world in fallen bodies. We are all going to bring dirt into the household of God. But the issue is not bringing in the dirt. The issue is getting the dirt cleansed by the Holy Spirit. So as you come down, come on down and the ushers will direct you going back to your seats. Salvation, where your love. 
and serve. Remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup and he says, he took the bread in the cup and he said, do this, take this meal, celebrate this in remembrance of me. Remembering me. This morning as we prepare to celebrate this meal together. Let's remember that we are the house of God. We are that temple that Jesus has purchased at the highest price for the highest purpose. And that each one of us each one of us brings in contamination and pollution because we live in a fallen world because we live in fallen bodies because we are not yet made perfect and what the Holy Spirit wants to do this morning is to lead us to ask Father as a child who has been purchased at the highest price I want to honor you and love you by asking you to reveal any uncleanness in me any defilement any pollution it's in all of us every one of us And we need to do this, you see, with a very sober mind and a very sober heart, not as a ritual. Why? Because the Son of God has died for this purpose, to purge us of sin and to purify us of this defilement. Because we are His holy people in whom His holy presence resides. Therefore, let's allow the Holy Spirit to inspect us this morning. Remember this prayer of David in Psalm 139. David, who had just committed a heinous crime. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. And I'm hoping that each one of you can say this truthfully to God yourself. Really meaning it. Because when God begins to show you, don't shut it down or explain it away, which is what's going to happen next. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any hurtful or grievous or sinful wrong way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, the Holy Spirit wants to cleanse us this morning, not just to cleanse us, but to cleanse us in order that we would stop something and start something new. Cleanse us in order that we would change something into another direction. 
Search me. What is he going to find in us? He's going to find in all of us that to some extent, all of us have elements of being a den of thieves. All of us. What will he find? What kinds of passions will he find in us? What is your passion this morning? What gets you excited and interested? Where are your thoughts most of the day? What kinds of thoughts do you have, especially when you're alone? When not things are not going well, what kind of thoughts do you have? What kind of activities are you involved in? What are you doing? And with whom are you doing it and why? What attitudes? What kinds of words am I using? What are my pursuits? Do I have any relational failures here? Any strains, anything that's not right with another? See, Jesus has entered the temple this morning. And he stands there and he looks around at every one of us personally. Every one of us. And should he say and call one person's name out, and it could be your name, I am going to display on this screen what you have been doing and thinking and saying and going this week. I think most of us would rather leave before that happens. If he were to display before all of us something about just last week or two weeks ago, and you kind of get a, mm, uncomfortable, there's something about that that needs to be cleansed. Because you see, our lives should be an open display to one another and to the world of his goodness and of his purpose. And we should be always ready to say, Lord, make me an open book at any time. This morning, let's take the bread together. Jesus said, this is my body. It represents my body, which is going to be given for you on the cross. And when you take this, remember me. But as we take it, if in your own heart you are not cooperating with the searching and searing and cleansing power of the Holy Spirit, don't take it. Don't take it. It'd be better not to take it. But in taking it, say to the Lord, not only this morning, but on a regular basis from now on, I am going to be a man and a woman who will continually let Jesus inspect me. Let's take the bread together for those of you who will. <clears throat> the Bible says, likewise, after dinner, after the meal, he took the cup. And he says, this cup represents the new and everlasting covenant in my blood. This cup that he will take and that is represented in what we're drinking this morning was a cup 
that represented the blood that he would spill, that gathered up the millions upon millions upon millions of animals that had been slain so the people could have fellowship with God. And now here it is, all being totaled and completed in one man's blood, shed one time, forevermore, never to be shed again. This is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. This is why we are here today. And for the sake of this shed blood, let us be a people who do not resist the searching, convicting, cleansing work of the Holy Spirit to keep our walk clean in His presence for His pleasing. If that's your intention, let's take the cup together. Don't yet, not yet. We're going to close in a celebration song because I want us to remember this. What Jesus has done, and it may have seemed sober to you today, and it needs to be, but once you're clean, it's a great celebration. But before we celebrate, I do have some sad news. Some of you may know Phage and Rufus Flowers. They had to leave this morning because their grandson just died. I, I don't know how that impacts someone. I have a grandson. So they just had to leave, and I think Steve Roberts took them. So let's be praying for Phage and Rufus. Let me pray before we celebrate. Father, Father, this morning we celebrate the gift of your son in his death for us. Father, we pray that this boy who has died, this grandson, this son, Father, we don't know his spiritual condition, but I pray that he was saved and that although he is not here, he's with you forever. Father, pray for grandma and grandpa. Pray for his parents. Father, for the crushing, breathtaking away feeling of hurt and emptiness and burden. Father, pray that you will fill them with your presence, with your kindness, with your comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. So church, how should we end a celebration of having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb? What should we do? We should stand up and make a whole lot of noise about it.
see the stone, see the stone is rolled away. Behold the Bless you guys. Have a good day.